just last night, me and my wife were uh, commenting on not only Adrian's gift, but his excitement and uh, the whole team's excitement and how they, uh, with much fervor, you know, draw us to the throne of grace. So I want to thank them for their ministry. Um, before we get into it, I'd love to just thank everyone here for uh, the ministry here of Mount Hermon. We've been well cared for uh, this week. Uh, as per usual, the team has done um, everything possible to make our week an enjoyable one. They've uh, dotted every I and crossed every T. Uh, I want to give homage to, uh, to Dave and Jeremy and so many of the other leaders, Mike and others. Would you join me giving a round of applause to the administrators and the leaders of Mount Hermon and thank God for them. And uh, also just the various staff members, um, you know, a big shout out to the sound booth. You know, we don't notice them until something goes wrong. And we haven't noticed y'all all week. You're great. And thank you for the humility and just um, the posture of servanthood that I see here at Mount Hermon. Did you have a good day at train day? Ready to go home and go to sleep? You can be honest. We're in church. You know, I get it. I hope you had a good time and I hope you had a blessed time. And uh, my family was scheduled to head out this morning. So they are headed home, should be getting home any second. And I'll see them in a few days. Uh, and so I just kind of got some work done, but it's been a good day for me as well. I want to go ahead and, and, and get into it. A lot of fish to fry in a few minutes to cook it. And I uh, want to go ahead and, and, and deliver what God has for us tonight. Uh, this is a sermon I actually want to preach. For what that's worth. I want to talk to you tonight about, um, about parenting and mentoring. And for those of you who are saying, Ricky, you've been married five minutes and you've had kids for 10 seconds. You're right. I totally agree. I'm going to spend a lot of time telling you what not to do. It's a joke that didn't land. Anyways, <laughs> uh, tonight is really about encouraging parents and encouraging those who have influence over others in the faith. Uh, to talk about parenting is, at the same time, an opportunity to talk about spiritual parenting. And so there are those of us who have kids and grandkids, but there are those of us who have disciples that we are influencing for the gospel. And so essentially, when I say parenting, uh, when I say mentoring, I'm talking about essential gospel rhythms that all of us need to kind of bring to the fore and uh, what God has called us to do. Everybody needs a Paul ahead of them and a Timothy behind them and a Barnabas beside them in your life. That's just a healthy rhythm and a gospel rhythm in your life. So uh, if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where I'm going to be for a few moments. And um, I kind of want to do something a little different. Um, and I'll, I'll probably uh, eat some time away from the sermon for doing this, but uh, I, I just, maybe it'll bless you. Um, I'd like to tell you the story of my heritage a little bit, and then we're going to go to God's uh, word, because uh, I can't think about parenting and shepherding hearts without thinking about these great men in my life. So guys, um, flash that picture uh, on screen, guys, if you have it. And uh, you see before me what we in our Jenkins family call the four generations picture. Uh, this is the four generations picture. It was taken back in 1979. Uh, I'll probably get a little teared up on this one because... I kind of get teared up on anything, but I probably definitely will on this one. Uh, this picture was taken in August of 1979, and so I would have been um, just around a little over two years old or so. Um, on the far furthest left is my late great-grandfather, Willie uh, Jenkins, who was a great pastor out in Rankin County, Mississippi, which is where we're from. On the right is my grandfather, the Reverend Willie Jenkins, Jr. Uh, granddaddy is still with us. Uh, today. And then the man in the middle is my daddy, Richard Jenkins Sr. And then uh, down below is what we Mississippians call Junebug, uh, Richard Jenkins Jr., which is uh, yours truly. My mom was a very uh, charismatic and spirit-filled woman, and she just kind of had a, a, an attuneness to the spirit. She really, truly walked with God, and she was a special lady. Uh, it was about three years in marriage when this picture was taken, and my mom was starting to realize that her new husband, who had professed to be a believer, was essentially not a believer. He was religious in his spiritual orientation. He was a minister of music at the church and was in church every Sunday, but his heart was far from God. And she realized this, and that's ushered in a season of fasting and prayer for my mom. And she was praying one day, and she believed that the Holy Spirit communicated to her uh, some great truth about his plan for our family. Uh, 
she was in prayer, and the Holy Spirit told her that I'm going to save your husband, and I'm going to call him to the pastorate. And then she said, I'm going to save your two-year-old son someday, and I'm going to call him to the pastorate as well. And in faith, uh, she decided to commemorate what the Spirit had told her by pulling all four men kicking and screaming to a photographer's studio to take this picture and honor the Holy Spirit for what he had told her. Sure enough, a few years later, Dad gave his life to Jesus and answered his call to the ministry, and obviously that happened in my life as well. Uh, The guy on the furthest left is my great-grandfather, Willie Jenkins. He's been in heaven um, almost 30 years. He was uh, a sharecropper growing up, and uh, back in those days, uh, a black guy in the South, and really every guy in the South, you worked at a mill, and when that mill shut down, you went to go work at the next mill, and all that kind of stuff. Spent a good bit of his life uh, uh, picking cotton, uh, and then got a call to ministry and became just this great country pastor that you've never heard of. Full of God's spirit, old school fundamentalist. Uh, Hellfire and Brimstone was pretty much his message. I can still see him as a boy. You think I'm dramatic, homeboy would jump on the pews. <laughs> so be glad I'm here and not him, okay? Uh, full of God's spirit. Had a prophetic gift. They said he can just kind of read your mail. And he kind of knew when to check on you. He could kind of tell when you were getting ready to do something pretty dumb. And so he kind of had a prophetic gift on him. Uh, His message was this, get right for the flight because it could be tonight. (laughs) He preached that all the time. And uh, um, years later, I I answered my call to ministry at around 21 or so. I went to preach at a sister church up in Chicago, Illinois. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, anyway, okay, I went to Chicago, Illinois, and I'm getting ready to preach at this big church up there, and I'm literally uh, going to the restroom, <laughs> and I'm just, that's all I'm going to say about that, before I get ready to go preach, and I don't want to be too graphic here, but men, you know what a restroom looks like, it's kind of a, a stall, and you stand, and you take care of your business, and so I'm just minding my own business, and guys, you all know this, there are unwritten rules, Of, of, of a men's restroom. And if there are several stalls, here are how the rules look. Um, you go to a stall, and you never go to a stall next to where there's another guy <laughs> if there are other options to go to, right? These are, these are unwritten rules. Second rule is this. If you happen to be next to another guy in a stall, the rules say, look straight ahead. <laughs> never look to the right nor to the left. These are rules. I'm getting ready to go preach, and I'm in my stall. No one's in there. Five stalls. No one's in there. And a burly gentleman, 60s, 70s, gets into the stall right next to me. So now my equilibrium is shattered because the rules are broken. (laughs) And he looks next to me and says, you're that old Jenkins boy, ain't you? And I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, yes, sir. And honestly, it went just like this. I know your great-granddaddy, boy. I'm from Utica, Mississippi. He was my pastor when I was a little boy. I was an old hellion back then. And I moved up here to Chicago, and I was a fool in those days. And a heathen boy, I get drunk and high all day. And I was a fool and got in all kind of trouble. One morning, boy, I was all drunk, drunk and high and all in the middle of my living room about to pass out. And boy, the Holy Spirit gave me a vision of your great-granddaddy. And your great-granddaddy said, get right for the flight, or it could be tonight. Boy, I gave my life to Jesus. I've been running ever since. All right, boy, preach the word. I've never seen the man again. (laughs) That was my great-grandfather. He'll be in in heaven, so you'll meet him someday. The man on the uh, the right, and why I always uh, get teary-eyed when I say this is because this is my uh, hero. And if you ask me who I'm trying to be like, it's this guy. My grandfather, um, full of God's spirit, about four or five years ago, he retired from 50 years of pastoral ministry. And uh, he had 10 kids. Um, and he's a, he's a hero. Um, discipled me. So when I announced I had to call the preach, this is the guy I reported to. And he taught me how to preach. He has an eighth grade education. And uh, when I started preaching the gospel, some of you know Albert Tate. 
Albert is my cousin, and this was our pastor. This is who discipled us. And so uh, old school church, um, we, you had Sunday morning service and Sunday night because that's what it means to be holy. <laughs> and uh, you didn't find out you were preaching Sunday night until Sunday morning. And literally the old man would say, you're preaching tonight, and he would get up and announce it. That's, that's how you got prepared, right? Anyway, this is, this is my granddad. Um, every Sunday night I had an appointment, and I would go every Sunday night while he was discipling me, and I would sit on his bed while he sat on a rocking chair. And he would read that old tattered Bible, and he would take me from passage to passage and literally say, Ricky, tonight we're going to talk about what it means to be a biblical dad. And he would take me to other passages and say, son, now I'm going to talk to you about what it means to be a shepherd and a pastor. And he would say stuff like this, people always matter more than preaching. He said, don't get in love with preaching that you lose love for people. Every Tuesday I had an appointment. I, I was working. He was retired by the time. And every Tuesday I had to meet him on my lunch break. He was retired. And we would go, remember sick and shut-in lists? And all the people that they would list. And we would go to his sick and shut-in list and visit members one after the one. And he taught me how to fold a $20 bill ever so slightly in your hand and how to read the 90th Psalm for the sick to pray over them and shake their hands to make sure you left them with the blessing. And so we would go from room to room to room to room to room to room. That's why I still do visitations today. And uh, when we got through with his list, then I would watch him go knock on the doors of strangers in the hospitals to ask their permission to pray for them. This is the man who I am trying to be like. He's a civil rights hero that you've never heard of. It's no secret that Mississippi was uh, somewhat of a storm for racial reconciliation, and um, they integrated the schools in Rankin County. And my dad and his nine siblings were the first to integrate the white schools in Pearl, Mississippi, which is a big deal. And uh, National Guard, and you know, you name it, it was happening. And uh, for months, um, the town of Pearl uh, went through it. And my siblings, my dad and his siblings were tormented for their stand to integrate the schools. And so my dad and his brothers would uh, get beaten up a lot uh, just to go to school. And my aunts um, would get on the school bus in the evenings crying because they had to pull out all the spit gobs out of their hair. My mom worked, my grandmother worked for a man by the name of Mr. Bright. Some of you have seen the movie The Help. Uh, me and April can't keep it together watching that movie because that's my grandmother. That's my grandmother's life. It's not my literal grandmother's. Some other people I don't know. Um, but that was my grandmother's life. She worked for a man named Mr. Bright, who was one of the richest men in Mississippi at the time. She was his maid and raised most of his kids. And um, the day we integrated the schools, the Ku Klux Klan and Pearl came to Mr. Bright and said, you better fire that girl. And Mr. Bright said, I'm not going to fire her because she did nothing wrong. And he took a stand. The next night, they had burning crosses in his yard. And when I get to heaven... I'll go find Mr. Bright, and I'll tell, you, tell him thank you for making a stand for the gospel. Uh, so that's my, my grandparents. Um, the town was on fire, and what happened was these kind of young teenage boys, uh, young white guys who were just delusional and fed some, some jacked-up stuff, started firebombing my granddad's house. Uh, one night, they sprayed the, the carport with bullets. The FBI came to uh, investigate. And so every Sunday night, they would come down. It was a dead-end road, and they would, throw, they would come down, turn around, and throw firebombs at the house. This was going on for weeks on end. And uh, just, you know, just terrible times. Uh, one particular Sunday night, my dad tells this story. One particular Sunday night, these young high school kids, they make the, the little U-turn in the dead-end street, and they run out of gas. <laughs> and my dad tells me the story to this day. He says, Ricky, we were just thinking, yes. And we're just waiting for the order from dad. And the boys are walking through the pitch black of night, and my grandfather has a shotgun to protect his family. And all of a sudden, granddad cocks the shotgun. I'm like, mister, mister, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, sorry. And my dad said that was the last word that was spoken that night. Uh, my granddad goes to the carport, and he gets a tube, and he gets a bucket, and he starts to siphon with his mouth gas out of his gas tank and spits it in his bucket. Over and over again, over again, filling it up with, with as much gas as he could stand. And dad said he didn't have a funnel to put back in their car. And so he cracked an old Coke bottle and said when he cracked it, it cut his hand. And so they all walked back to their, the boy's pickup truck. And my dad says, I'll never forget the picture of watching my dad funnel gas 
through the enemy's gas tank as blood streamed down his hand. And uh, those boys never came back after that night because the gospel says we ought to lay our rights down and show the love of Jesus. That's my, uh, that's my granddad. The guy in the middle you've heard about, one of the reasons I wanted to reconcile with my dad so much is because he gave me a firm foundation and he loved me and he worked hard and he came home every day and he was faithful to my mom. Um, they were charismatics without any seat belts whatsoever. <laughs> so some of that you see in me. Um, they, they loved Jesus and they, they, they cared about us. I had gospel parents. Uh, they were always preaching to us, always sharing the gospel. It was not uncommon at all for us to be getting ready to eat some fried chicken, rice and gravy, macaroni and cheese, collard greens, cornbread with a splash of vinegar, red Kool-Aid, not strawberry, not cherry, red Kool-Aid. And it was, we'd be holding hands. It was un not uncommon at all for my dad to say, boys, we've been talking to you about Jesus. Are you ready to receive him as your Lord and Savior tonight? It was not uncommon at all. Many a morning I woke up as a kid and I would be going to the bathroom to brush my teeth and would notice there was residue of anointed oil on my forehead. And what that meant was that mom and dad had got up in the middle of the night in a fit of prayer and would lay hands on their babies. And you can't tell me why I don't get to go around the world to do this. It's because they didn't put that deposit in me. I say all this to say, um, you've heard about those three. And we don't know what's going to become of Junebug. <laughs> but we do know in tough times, he looks back at a heritage that has been passed down to him, and it gives him fuel to go on. My prayer for you, should, you, should my sermon fail, <laughs> my prayer for you is that one day, and I hope you hear my heart, one day my, my prayer is that your great grandbaby will go around the world and tell stories about what Jesus did in your life. That's my prayer. And so Moses writes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Mount Herman, I've read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. I have read from the greatest book ever written. And I bear witness this day that all of its words are true. Amen? Amen. Uh, I want to talk to you about family, principles, tried and true from the Bible itself. And the question is, why do I want to talk about family? It's because when you and I perceive culture, we all know what's happening. We all know that we are drifting from a vision of biblical foundation that was handed on to each and every one of us. We all know this. It's obvious to us in our culture. And it's time for us to refocus our energies towards what God is doing in our own homes because I'm convinced that if I want to see the culture turn for the cause of Christ, I cannot depend on those men and women in Washington, D.C. And you ought to say, amen. amen. I cannot depend on the upper echelons of academia. I cannot depend on corporate America. I must depend on what I can do in my own home. Because this is something that we can influence. So uh, Reverend Tony Evans, that great, wonderful preacher, said it best when he said that the problem in culture is that we're way too focused with what's going on in the White House and not focused nearly enough as to what's going on in our house. I want to encourage you to believe that the greatest way through which you may be able to make Jesus famous is to focus the, the, the total of your energies on what God is doing in your house. Friend, I get to preach the thousands every weekend, but I'm convinced that the way through which I'm going to make Jesus more famous than any other medium under my influence is through what happens at my breakfast table. 
that the way that I show up with April and the way that I show up with Camden and Grand and Andy, that will be the ultimate tool through which I am able to make Jesus more famous in the earth. And I just want to say it to you as well. I'm not saying don't get the success. I'm not saying don't build up the company. I'm not saying don't build up the 501c3. I'm just saying it's plausible that the way through which you and I are going to make God look the goodest to the world is how we show up in our own homes. I want to remind you that at the end of the day, I want to talk about this because the gospel or the culture needs gospel parenting. The culture needs gospel parenting, okay? Uh, there's a, a, a wonderful new scholar that's emerging. Her name is Jaquel Crow, young writer, very young gal. Uh, she's a member of what we call Generation Z, Generation Z. Generation Z, these are the kiddos that are coming after the millennials, right? The millennials, are, they are winning. They are large and in charge right now. They're the reason why there's 97 Avengers movies, okay? Those are the millennials. But after them is coming the Generation Z. These are kids that are born between 1995 and 2015. But Christian scholars have begun to label Generation Z as America's first post-Christian generation. And look at what she had to say on behalf of her generation. She said, we're spiritually illiterate. The first generation raised without even a memory of the gospel. We are lost and leaderless. We are, we're raised by a self-directed model of parenting in a hypersexualized world, meaning Generation Z grew up faster and lost their innocence sooner than any other generation. And now we're facing a dynamic world hopelessly confused about God, church, morality, and faith. What's this kid saying? She's saying, I need the church to be the church. She's saying, I need the church to interrupt my way of doing life and show me another model. I need the church to invite me to church. I need the church to invite me to their homes because chances are I'm not going to see a solid biblical witness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has called me to do. Ricky, what's your argument? The culture needs gospel parenting. That's you and that's me. Okay? Now, when we come to the scripture, I'm going to zoom out and then we're going to zoom in. But here's the question I want to beg of the scriptures. What is a biblical picture of parenting and mentoring? When you, when you think about it that, when you kind of survey the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, where, where can we grab a biblical vision of what it means to be a parent? It's in the Bible in Psalm 127. You look at it on the screen with me? The psalmist says, behold, hear it, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. There it is. If you're looking for a biblical picture of mentoring, if you're looking for a biblical picture of parenting, the Bible says you are a warrior. <laughs> and some of you just said, well, that makes a lot of sense because I've been fighting with this kid all day, right? The biblical picture is that you are a warrior. So let's just imagine that I'm an archer and this is my quiver that is filled with arrows, okay? Here's my big, big, big quiver of arrows. And the idea of parenting is to so steward the hearts of children, to so steward the hearts of the people you're discipling, that as you engage with them while they are with you and in your nest, you are engaging with them in such a way that you are preparing them to be unleashed on the world as weapons for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? The idea is that yes, nurture, yes, love, yes, make memories, but the ultimate purpose of parenting is not to so interact with them as if they're going to be with you forever, sweet little Kate and Hayden, Jaden and Aiden but to understand that their destiny is not to be a cute little kid forever, but to one day be a weapon that God can use to advance his purposes with the gospel. Anybody smelling what I'm stepping in? It's this idea that they're cute here, but cute don't work forever. It's the idea that it's nice and funny now, but it ain't nice and funny forever. That at the end of the day, God is calling me and you to remind ourselves that little bitty Susie will one day be big Susie without you. Will you give her what she needs to be effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Y'all with me so far? Okay, cool. You, you're not mad at me, right? Okay. Now, if I mess this up, Mark's going to fix it all in the morning. Okay. Now, how do we do that? How do we get our kids there? How do we get our mentees there? Moses would say, your first responsibility is to let them hear 
the gospel. Everybody say, they got to hear it. Let them hear the gospel. Let's zoom in on the text, verse 7. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Of course, the first question here is, what is them? Well, Moses here is talking about the oracles of God, the word of God. For our purposes on this side of the cross, we are talking about the good news of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. He's saying that you got to make sure that your kids, more than anything, hear the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, we got to feed them. <laughs> Obviously, we got to put a roof on their heads. Obviously, we got to make sure they go to school. But Moses is saying you'll miss the biblical destiny, a destiny of parenting if you fail to make sure that they are constantly being immersed by a gospel witness that comes from you. Can I drop a word here? Not from their junior high pastor, from you. Not from the people at camp, from you. Folks, the folk, the church staff is a bonus to what you're doing, not a substitute. Okay, um, let them hear the gospel. So as we come to the text, the implication that Moses is trying to deliver to us is that for the parent, there should be an eagerness for you to pass on the oracles of the good news to your kids and to your mentees, right? So underline that phrase real quickly. I'm running out of time here. But underline that phrase, teach them diligently. Teach them diligently. The Old Testament is originally written in a language called Hebrew, and the Hebrew language, that English phrase, teach them diligently, is the Hebrew word shanan, shanan. Shanan is the idea of teaching through repetition, teaching through repetition. What Moses here is saying, guys, is that the parents should be Jesus freaky minor birds. He's basically saying that you should be willing to point your kids to Jesus and give them an audible witness of the gospel. And here's the key that most parents seem to miss. It's the idea that you're doing this over and over and over again. What's Moses' big idea? I think Moses understands that the human heart doesn't just need information. It just doesn't just need to be informed. The human heart needs to be reminded. I know for me, when I'm in trouble, nine times out of ten, I don't need to hear anything new. What I need to hear is something I already knew to be true, that in this season of my life I've forgotten again. So Moses is saying that's what we're supposed to do with the gospel. It's the idea that we love Jesus so much that we're willing to talk about him all the time, okay? Now, this is why I'm excited about this, because I love that Moses is saying that to be a great parent... Uh, he's not saying you, to be a great parent, you got to go to seminary. <laughs> Thank you, God, right? It's the last thing we need. He's not saying to be a great parent, you got to memorize the whole Bible. He, he's not saying to be a great parent, you got to go to church every time they open the doors. That's good news. You're supposed to say, yay, right? That's good news. He's saying to be a good parent, be so excited about what's going on with you and Jesus that you're willing to talk about it all the time. Now, let's zoom out on the text. We're in Deuteronomy 6. I just want you to think expectation. This is inherent expectation that God has given his people. They're going over into the promised land. They're crafting the law and the foundation for the society. And at the end of the day, God is saying, hey, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Uh, it's what the Jews call the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. He is one. And then he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We all know this, but essentially all I want you to see here, stay with me in the classroom for a few minutes, I promise we're going to church, is that the tenor of the text is that God gives in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 the greatest commandment in the whole Bible. But the greatest commandment in the whole Bible comes after the greatest evidence in the whole Bible outside of the cross that God is worthy of love. Did you hear that? What I love about this is that God waits until after the plagues in Egypt. He waits until after he sends a man named Charlton Hess, I mean a man named Moses, to go free the children of Israel. He waits to after he brings them into the wilderness and sustains them. And after a track record of evidence, God in Deuteronomy 6 does not say in an assertive way and in an introductory way, hey, I'm God, you got to love me. He graciously says, hey, look at all the stuff I've done for you. I'm worthy of love. Parent, that's it. You ought to have a track record by now that looks back over your life and says, Jesus has done a whole lot for me, and that ought to be a treasure trove of verbal witnesses that he is good that you pass down to your kids, right? It's the idea. 
If Jesus is worthy of your love, he ought to be worthy of your conversation. It's the whole thing, right? If he's worthy of your love in the household, he ought to be worthy of your conversation. If you ever come down to see me at Southwest Church down in the Coachella Valley, right near Palm Springs, a town called Indian Wells, okay, if you ever go there, come see me after service. I'm going to take, to take you to a wonderful sandwich shop called the TKB Sandwich Shop. It is, hear it now, the greatest sandwich in all the world. I love TKB sandwiches. Church, hear it. These sandwiches are saved, <laughs> sanctified, Holy Ghost filled, and fire baptized. I love me some TKB sandwiches, and everybody in the valley knows it. Why? Because they've always satisfied me, and they've never failed me yet. And because I am so in love with TKB sandwiches, everyone at Southwest knows that Ricky talks about TKB all the time. So anyone that comes up to me and says, Ricky, I'm hungry. Where should I go for lunch? I'm going to say TKB. People say, Ricky, I'm not that hungry. Where should I go for lunch? I'm going to say TKB. People say, I'm having a party tonight. Where should I go? I'm going to say TKB. People say, Ricky, where should I get my taxes done? I'm going to say TKB. <laughs> you see, I love TKB so much that it's become my answer for everything. Parent, you ought to love Jesus so much that he has now in your home become your answer for everything. Mom, my heart is broken. Who should I date? Jesus. <laughs> Dad, I'm hungry. What's for dinner tonight? Jesus. Dad, I don't know what's going on. I can't stand these roommates. I want to move out. Can I come back and live with you guys? No. Dad, who am I going to live with? Jesus. He ought to be your answer for everything. One more nugget, and I got to move on, but here it is. Parent, you are the resident preacher in your household. The, the preacher, your kids should hear more than anybody, more than Matt Chandler, more than John Piper, even more than Chuck Swindoll, should be mom and dad. It may not be a sermon they love, but it ought to be the sermon they've heard more than any other one. Because you're so in love with Jesus that you want to talk about them all the time. So let them hear the gospel. Number two, let them see the gospel. Everybody say, I got to see something. Look at verse eight. It says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Moses here is teaching that there ought to be such a connection between you and the Savior that not only are our kids and our mentees hearing the gospel from us verbally, but they're seeing the gospel in us visibly. Did you hear that? The idea is that they shouldn't just be hearing a witness that Jesus is Lord. If we really want to sell the gospel, they ought to look at our lives and see that Jesus is Lord and that we believe him. And so Carl Barth, the great neo-orthodox theologian, used to always tell his pastors, gentlemen, they keep coming back to your church to see if you still believe it. The idea in the home is that if you really want to sell your heart, your kids' hearts on Jesus, you ought to show them through your ups and downs of life that you still believe that he is who he says he is. It's the idea that it ought to be a visible witness. Now, the Jews took this verse literally. Like, literally, they pulled out different passages of Scripture. Uh, the Pharisees called them phylacteries. They put them in these little tassels to hang on their sleeves. It's the idea that there ought to be a visible witness of the Word of God. And I think we need to take it literally again as well. Remind ourselves that, man, my kid who's looking at everything I do now, I realize, is not near as much listening to what I have to say as much as he is mimicking what I do. Now, this is not all of us. This is only two of us, and those two didn't even show up tonight. So I'm not talking about anyone in here. I'm talking about the two that didn't show up. Sometimes we wonder why our kids aren't really gravitating to the gospel, why they're really not buying this. Sometimes the reason is because there's a disconnect between the gospel we are preaching and the gospel we are practicing. Sometimes our actions don't marry up with our words. There's a disconnect between the witness you're preaching and the witness you're practicing. It's like Ricky Jenkins advocating for a plant-based diet. <laughs> There's a disconnect between what I'm saying and what I'm doing, okay? Can I get a Popeye's chicken witness up in here? 
the idea is that if you really want to sell it, they can't just hear it. They got to see it. Now, how do we see it? You guys know this. You go to Mount Hermon regularly. You need to teach me. I need to listen to you. We all know some of these applications. They need to see mom and dad reading the scripture together. They need to see mom and dad committing to prayer. They need to see mom and dad going to church even when they're tired They need to see mom and dad saying, you know what, sports is important and music is important and practice is important, but we're going to make sacrifices to show up in worship because we want to honor the corporate communion of the saints. They need to see this stuff. But if you really want to get to the nitty gritty of what your kids need to see, here's my little two cents that I'd add to the repertoire. Here it is. Make apologies normal in your household. Make apologies normal in your household. If you really want to show the humility of Christ, admit when you messed up. Admit when you just blew it. Teach your kids how to ask for forgiveness by when you mess up. And by the way, we do mess up. Is to humble yourself and say, son, will you forgive me? And I got to do this all the time. Make apologies normal. Uh, When I was 12, I became a hellion. And the hormones were raging, I guess. And I just had a bad attitude. I was talking back. And my mom, uh, till the day she died, called it that summer. <laughs> I was 12 years old, just talking back all the time. She gave me a lot of grace. I grew up in a, um, uh, I'm just going to say it, frankly. I got to be careful in California. But I grew up in Mississippi. And what I mean by that is my parents um, showed me love. Can I get one witness? Okay. Right, right, yeah. We, you didn't go to a corner in my house. Like, my dad cut out all the corners just so it wouldn't even be possible to go. Like, we, did, we didn't have time out in my house, right? Like, my, my dad would spank you, and you would fall out and take some time out, right? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding at all. That's exactly what happened. Anyways, so the idea is that you got to make apologies normal. And I just want you to hear this. So it's the summer. That summer, I'm talking back, and mom had said, hey, I want you to take the clothes out of the dryer when they're done and fold all the clothes. And I just kind of decided, you know what? I'm not going to do it. There was these two angels that showed up. One had red spandex and a pitchfork. One had a white halo. And I just knocked the one with the white halo off, and I listened to what the red one said, and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Mom comes up to me. She says, why didn't you do what I told you to do? And all of a sudden, guys, the spirit of the enemy consumed me, and I looked at my black African-American female mama from Jackson, Mississippi, and I said, because I ain't feel like it. (laughs) Y'all, my mama turned into a dragon. (laughs) And you don't don't play with sisters from Mississippi, right? So, I mean, she was like, no, I know, you know, you know, you know, she, 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 she let me have it. But she went a little too far. And like literally, she was just so angry. My mom literally just, she just popped me on my chest. And we didn't do it like that. We had a certain point. She, and she did that, and it just demoralized me. And I just burst into tears, and I ran away. I just ran out of the house. Didn't speak to her the rest of the day. We're in church the next day, and they're up there singing their song. And I'm just still like, I can't believe that happened. I will not forget, when I get to heaven, I won't forget her nudging my shoulder. And mom, remember how we used to fold notes in junior high? Mom had written a note and had folded it like junior high in church. And I'm... It's like ghetto origami, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And the note said... Baby boy, mama loves you more than you'll ever know. Mama went too far yesterday. I called you out of your name and I hit you in a way that I said I'd never, ever punish you. I'm so sorry. Baby, can you ever find it in your heart (laughs) to forgive me? (laughs) And I reached over and I gave her the biggest kiss on the cheek. And she showed me more about the love of Christ that day 
than on every other day before. Make apologies normal in the house. Let's go on this one. You got to let them. You got to let them hear the gospel. You got to let them see the gospel. Here's the toughest part, but the most fun part. Okay, let them experience the gospel. Let them experience the gospel. Everybody say, let them live. Look at verse 9. Remember the, the picture, though, of parenting, Psalm 127, right? The idea is that you're not supposed to keep them here, right? But you're eventually supposed to take them there. <laughs> Everyone look at this way. The idea of parenting is not here. It is there. Success is not when they're with you here. Success is when they go away from you and go over there. So look at verse 9. Moses says, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Jews did this literally too. They would write the word of God on the doorpost of their homes and on the gates of the city. The idea is when you're leaving home, you still know what home believes in and you take it with you. Okay? So when you hear verse 9, just think exit. Okay? I want to say this with as much humility as I can muster here. Here it is. Ricky Jenkins says, which ain't worth much. But Ricky Jenkins thinks that our biggest problem in culture is that we are not raising kids who are ready to leave. And so they stay. Because they're not ready to leave. So they stay. Because they're not ready to leave. So they leave and come back because they're not ready to leave. Okay? Now, how did this happen? It's just Ricky Jenkins' two cents. I think in this generation, and honestly in the last one as well, we gave our children something that God never intended for them to have. What we gave them is everything. Here's the problem with getting everything. You go into the world, they give you nothing. But you believe that you're supposed to have everything without working for it, and you engage everyone else in the world as if they're supposed to give you something without work. Can I go further? Y'all okay? Okay? All right. I ain't got to come back next year. It's all good. Okay? <laughs> We give them everything. So I would say to the 2019 parent, and I'm talking to myself, you know this, be careful. Kid wasn't designed to have everything. C.S. Lewis said it best when he says, failures are finger posts on the road to achievement. His idea is that cuts and scrapes form a child. But the problem with culture is that we're not letting them have cuts and scrapes. Um, this is a soapbox, and I've got to be careful here, and you can send it to my email with your complaints. I'm not going to read it, but you can send it there. <laughs> we just got to be careful to make sure we don't go entirely with the sweep of culture, okay? Now, um, what do I mean? Kids' sports today. Now, I get it. Behavioral psychologists, I know the argument. I know exactly why you're doing that. And in many ways, I agree. I get it, okay? But now, kids play soccer. Everybody gets a trophy. One, you lost, you tied, it rained. You get a trophy. I don't know about y'all, but when I was coming up, when you lost, you just lost. That's kind of what happened, and you just had to deal with it. Can I be careful here? But can I go further? But I promise to be careful. For the first time in recorded history, college counselors and college professors 10 years ago began to complain about their students' parents. First time in recorded history. Why? Because Johnny gets a D. And then mom comes up to see the prof and says, why did Johnny get a D? And the poor prof has to say, because he got a D. <laughs> This just happened about three, four years ago. First time in recorded history. Recorded history. 
for the first time in recorded history, corporate supervisors and managers began to complain about their employees' parents. There's an educator in the Valley that's a good friend of mine, top-tier educator, major thinker. And I always get with him because I want to know how to preach to parents. And I said, man, so what's going on now? Like, what, what's going on with parents now? And he says, well, you know how we always call them helicopter parents, right? So, guys, you know this. Like, the parents just, whoop, 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 Just hovers over Johnny, right? And every, anytime Johnny's about to get in trouble, he says, we don't call them helicopter parents anymore. I said, okay, cool. What do you call them? He says, we call them lawnmower parents. So I said, what does that mean? He says, well, they used to hover, and they would just swoop in when Johnny got in trouble. Now, they just pave a pristine, clean path in front of them where Johnny doesn't have to experience anything but walk along this path that his parents provided. All I want you to hear is that that's going to ruin our kids' hearts. And we got to fight against the sway of culture that's going to ridicule us and tell us we're weird for, you know, saying they can't have a cell phone till they're nine. <laughs> so we got to be ready for that because we are what? Preparing them for the gospel, right? Let me close. I got I to get out. Okay. All right. Okay. How do we do this? Two encouragements. Number one, don't stop nurturing kids. So I don't want you to hear that. I don't want you to hear Ricky saying, be tough and be mean. I'm not saying that at all. Kids need nurture. Your mentees need to know mama loves them, daddy loves them, grandpa loves them, and believes in them. Don't you dare stop that. They need that to thrive, okay? It's just something you need to add, not take away. And I would submit to you that there are three words that you need to employ in your parenting and mentoring that I think will drastically bless your kids. Here are the three words. Figure it out. Amen. I remember going to college, and my parents had gotten me a sports car, 1995 Chevrolet Camaro, um, because I got a full scholarship, got a full ride. And my mom comes up to me. I'm getting ready to move into the dorms. And she sits down with me, and she says, hey, babe, um, where are you going to work when you go to college? I said, oh, mom, I'm not going to work in college. It's the best years of my life. I want to make excellent grades. I want to study. I want to be on the quad. I'm thinking about intramurals, and my, my, I'm, just, I'm not going to work in college. She says, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then she says, babe, where are you going to work when you go to college? <laughs> she then looks at me, and she says, son, the children of Israel were provided manna in the wilderness. Ricky, there will be no manna for you. <laughs> oh, you can say amen. What she was saying was, figure it out. Let me close with this. Um, you know where I'm going, preachers. Um, they tell us that eagles have a certain practice with their eaglets. Now, everyone knows eagles have their nests perched atop high cliffs. They're way up in the mountains, right? Um, and mom and daddy eagle have this practice when they sense that it's time for the eaglets begin flying. They tell us for a couple of weeks, mom and dad literally hover three feet above the nest and fly in place. They say some species of eagles can flap their wings so fast that they resemble a big old hummingbird. And so for two weeks, every 20 minutes or so, they just hover over, hover over the nest, hover over the nest, hover over the nest and stop. Hover over the nest, hover over the nest. Hover over the nest and stop. And you can just imagine what's going on in the eaglet's mind, right? They're chewing on a, a hot dog worm, right? And they're like, <laughs> Dad's losing it today, huh? <laughs> Mom's nuts. <laughs> they do this for two weeks, hover on the nest. Well, there comes this moment where Mama Eagle takes it to the next step. What she does is takes the curvature of her beak and that sharp point there. She gets over the nest, 
and she starts to pluck against the flesh of the eagles, which is giving them this signal that I need to move before I get plucked to death. This is true. Look at this. Google this. It's there. After she plucks, she then turns her neck and pushes them out. They literally throw them out of the nest. Something now is happening. The eaglet has fallen furiously to the ground. And then, while falling to the ground, the eaglet is now processing some things he's never thought about before. It goes something like this. I'm falling. I'm falling fast. I'm falling to the ground. I need to figure this out. My mom and daddy just looking at me. What am I going to do? Then it hits them. Wait, for two weeks, mom and daddy were acting crazy, but it's all coming back to me now. They were using their wings. I got wings. My wings work. And then they fly. Get the lesson? You didn't move in your life to the Holy Spirit interrupted you. How much more do our kids need us when it's time? Lest you think I'm being harsh, biologists tell us that even when the kid doesn't get it, the parents never let him hit the ground. They swoop down and catch him, and they do the lesson all over again. So lest you think I'm talking about performance and not grace, it's not that. Because even when Jesus kicked you out, he never let you fall. (sighs) May it be such that our great-grandchildren are one day telling stories about what Jesus did in us. Good night.